0: a couple years ago i was sitting down uh, taking a break from my job at the athletic media company and uh, i was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from athletic brewing and i thought uh, hey this this could be a partnership because i'm i'm an ad wizard and so i put those two things together and Took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers. And I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver. And that is it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat. And it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light. They have upside uh, dawn golden. They have run wild IPA. They have a hazy IPA. They have summer seasonals. They've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is. But now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you. And use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes... Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this, this is good non alcoholic beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. <laughs>
1: How's it going, everybody? This is Andy McCullough from The Athletic here with Mark Carrig, Also from The Athletic, you are listening to a special virtual me- winter... What is it? The winter meetings? The winter meetings? That's what they're I, called? I believe that's correct. You are listening to the special virtual winter meetings edition of Beyond the Scrum. That's Mark Carrig. I'm Andy. How are you guys doing? I, I guess I'm, I was just talking to the audience. It's been a while since we podcasted, Mark. I forget how to do this medium.
2: Yeah, no, it's been a while. It's good to see you again, though.
1: It's great to see you as well. Yes, wow. I like your shirt. Very Thank festive. You. Yeah, it's a flannel. I decided to wear something different today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, we have a great guest here as uh, we're going to be getting into the off season, what's happened already, what is to come, what we're missing about not having an actual winter meetings this year. It's Mike Farron from SiriusXM and Arizona Diamondbacks Propaganda. Mike, how are you? Great, Andy. <laughs> 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 nice to be with you. Why? How are things
2: over at Pravda?
1: <laughs> yeah, D-backs Pravda. Pravda yeah. We well, actually want to talk about the D-backs. I, I am interested in the d Would you like D-backs. to That's I actually know. America's some, team. America's team. Yeah. The, yeah. I like the D-backs. Hey, uh please rate. No, me. it's a fact Jack. You do like the oh, I do love that song. That is my favorite. uh, That is my favorite post game victory song. Michael, how are you, man?
3: I'm great. It's it's nice to see your guys' faces. I wish we were standing around making fun of Passon together in a hotel lobby, but here
1: we are. (laughs) Passon, Passon, who you know just debases himself on the worldwide leader, uh, you know, weekly at this point. Said this podcast is lame. So uh, if you disagree with him, please rate and review us on iTunes.
3: I have to say, nice. I've listened to it a couple of times, and I must say it is the most mundane podcast I have ever listened to. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. It's just mundane. It is I'd, what it is. No, wow. you guys have done some great stuff. The Ross Stripling interview this, um, what, was what month was girl. that again? Oh, oh it was that was, that was long like March 78th, okay. right? That was really good.
1: Yeah, that was with me and Pedro. Thanks for yeah, listening, Michael. Thanks Oh, sorry. It. That was uh yeah, that. that was the Dodgers podcast. It's no. all right. well, that was good. No, close That's enough. You still true. doing that one, Andy? <laughs> We're doing lots of things here at the Athletic. Uh, you can subscribe at theAthletic.com. There's no winter meetings. How are you guys holding up without it?
3: Well, I mean I can only speak for me, but I actually love the winter meetings because I get to stand around and Drink with you guys for four days. You know, like we 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 see each other a little bit maybe during the course of the season, but we don't get everybody together out except at dual events and at the winter meetings. There's a lot more downtime than there is if you're covering an all-star game or or you know the World Series or a League Championship Series. So I miss it. I mean, the, the thing I miss the most about regular baseball this year was just seeing everybody, you know, missing, missed, you know, having random conversations with either friends who are journalists or scouts, or, you know, talking to coaches or players, any of that. I like baseball in, I mean, I love the, the sport, but I like covering baseball because people in, in baseball tend to like to talk about baseball. And there's a lot of time to stand around and have conversations over the course of the day. And uh, as an extrovert, I missed that. So, my dogs are really tired of me um, discussing um, you know whether or not it, it's actually five million dollars a win versus eight million dollars a win on the free agent market <laughs> and you know whether or not the the you know rap Sotos do a good enough job of uh, tracking spin axes um, and and you know how to pair that stuff together and I would rather ha- have somebody else that doesn't just bark at me uh, have that conversation I would rather than bark at me in English as opposed to in dog
1: sure yeah my cat is very confused why I keep asking why the Rockies DFA'd or non tender David Dahl but are paying Michael <laughs> Givens. It just, you know, but my, do- my cat is just like, please leave me alone. I don't care about this.
3: You know what the line is for this? I finally figured it out the other day. anytime you come up with anything that can't be explained in 2020, you just have to pause and go, the aristocrats.
1: There you go. That's it. <sighs> that's what it is.
3: It's the aristocrats. That's, it.
1: that's why the Rockies are doing that. Yeah, the Rockies. God bless them. Mark, how are you,
2: man? Ah, uh, no one cares, Andy. But I'm fine. I'm fine. I I'm, care. Uh, no, you don't. D- just <laughs> stop. Stop with your bullshit already. We're not. We're not even five minutes into this thing, and you're already full of crap. You don't care. Or but I mean, I'm care fine. I
3: about you than I do, Andy. Well, that's,
2: definitely that's true. nice. That, maybe that's true. I, I'm. I'm. well, Andy. I. Uh, you know, it's. I never thought I would say this, but uh, I, I miss the winter meetings. Um, you know, it's uh, it's my annual heater palooza. So uh, that sort of sucks <laughs> to not have that. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it is fun to see everybody meandering about, like, going through that hallway and hearing Farron's voice bounce around like a basketball <laughs> while you're trying to, like, hear Boris. You know, like, you, you got, you're, like, leaning in, trying to hear Boris. You got Farron barking in the background, and that, always in that hallway, always in front of, like, the yep. media room.
1: Yep, right in um, front of the media center. Always you know. there always interviewing yeah. ron reneke or something yes it's yeah. always
2: Farron and a, and a former met gm riding shotgun every year somewhere you know um like it so yeah i, I do miss that um it is good to see you Farron. my daughter who is going to turn three uh mm-hmm. i think it was last month goes this is power alley <laughs> we listen to the show so much <laughs> that when it's not on she's like daddy where's baseball so um although you don't listen to this podcast we listen to your show you do a hell of a job and uh, apparently she thinks so too (laughs) Well,
3: so. tell her thank you. It's, we are trying to appeal to a younger audience. That's why they have uh, two middle-aged white guys hosting the program. Yes.
2: No, she's really more into Duquette than you, but <laughs> yeah, that's probably. okay. Yeah. I figured she likes
3: the, the Brady's uh, uh, Ladies and Gentlemen MLB Network Radio proudly presents where he asked Jim to determine whether or not somebody played for the Phillies in the 1930s or it's a craft bourbon. <laughs> 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 it's one of my favorites. What, hey, what,
2: what is the... I, I've been meaning to ask you this. Like In you guys' intro. Like there's all these like baseball like general terms, mm-hmm. and then you got I think it's you and Ducat going hot chocolate. What the hell is that from? Like, what is that a reference to? You know what? I don't it even doesn't make sense
3: where it came from. It probably was it, it. It's something that's happened relatively recently, like within the last three or four months, and. I think it might be A-Rod related. Hang on, let me send a text (laughs) message and like Rod is our favorite whipping boy, right? Because like I I actually made t-shirts that say bacon on the table. Bacon on the table. Oh beautiful. (laughs) So like (laughs) um, so yeah, like I don't remember exactly where it came from, but we just act like assholes for the most part. So like that's it doesn't really matter. Uh, you
2: guys have gotten a lot of mileage out of the bacon on the table thing, which is super, super entertaining. I mean, the fact that he went back to it again, like eight weeks later after he said,
3: like the whole the whole premise was that what was it? Guys like Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts so are the guys you want up in the big spots when the bacon is Bacon's on the table. On the table. And he's then, obsessed
1: like, with right man, right spot. That's his like. That's his tip. He's obsessed with bunting. <laughs>
2: that too
3: the other one was from opening night It was the, the, the who was i can't remember from the nationals laid down the sacrifice and he said heads you win tails you win more
1: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't I think it.
3: It's. I mean, it's. There was a. There was a really pretty good uh, made-for-TV movie, probably about fifteen, almost twenty years ago, about um, the early days of Monday Night Football, called Monday Night Mayhem. And there are some clips in there of what OJ was like as a sideline guy, which are just like you know. I got a tip from a source that the Chiefs are talking to Stram about a head job. Like that's what I think of every time I hear Rod talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the right comp uh mike and we're just gonna move on uh, not, not
3: not in not we're just gonna, in like we're just not move off on. the air i mean
1: we're just gonna move on and Obviously, say that the Ray views Rock of our different. guests do not reflect the views of beyond the scrum <laughs> that's all i'd like to say about that hey i got a question for you michael so uh so it seems like James McCann's going to get four years. Uh, Mike Miner and Carlos Santana seem like they got fair-ish deals, you know, yeah. like deals that made sense. Drew Smiley got $11 million. Um, it was, like, I talked to a lot of execs and agents this summer who were kind of predicting doom and gloom this offseason. I'm sure, you know, you did as well. Like, was that misplaced? Like, is this offseason behaving normally, at more normal than we would have expected? I think so.
3: I mean, I think the numbers that we've seen on players are pretty reasonable. They might be a little bit of haircuts and spot. Like, we, we tried to have this... Yeah debate, because I'm sure you, you guys had similar conversations where there was a feeling that payrolls were going to roll back, what, 20 to 30%, right? That mm-hmm. was what I tended to get the range was. And so if you add a 20% premium to most of the contracts you have now, they certainly would look like, you know, like take Charlie Morton, for example, right? One year, $15 million is what he gets, which was the option was that the raise decline. If you were to add 30 or 20% to that contract, you're at what, like 1 in 18, right? Like if Charlie Morton and a normally winner had gone 1 in 18, Teen, you'd have gone, yeah, that's, you know, it's a good number for him. That's basically what Cole Hamels got last year. Right, right? right. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I think you're right. I mean, it has, maybe it has been a little bit of a haircut, in terms of what you would normally get on a market, I mean, league average players getting about $5 million a win, you know, in wins above replacement it is, you know, what I think, you know, Saris was just recently writing about. In fact, we were talking about that article this morning. And so if Santana and like Adam Eaton are just a tick below that, then yeah, I mean, I think it that's it, about where it is. So maybe there's a 20% reduction Um, For guys, but for the most part, it, it nothing feels like nobody feels like they've signed a deal where you go, Whoa, that's really crazy out of line. Now, James McCann, if he signs for four years, that's going to feel crazy out of line for a guy who was non-tendered two years ago, but we don't really at, at this time know what the money looks like in that. And and I can't imagine that it's going to be so significant that, right. um, you know, that it's going to be, it, we're going to go, Oh my gosh, this guy
1: got a $60 million deal. I just don't see right. that happening. I remember like a, this was like maybe almost, it might've been like a decade ago, but I remember like Randy Choate got a three year deal mm-hmm. and I was like, I mean, are you serious? A three year deal? And that's like, oh well, they're paying him like a million dollars a year. So like <laughs> right. why you know, like who right. cares? Uh so like yeah, there's a if McCann gets, you know, four for thirty two, it's like, yeah, okay. If he gets, you know, as you said, four for sixty, then it's you know, we're in sort of bizarro land. But yeah, I mean I think like it was interesting, like was the non tender deadline a bloodbath? No. Was it pretty bad for labor? Yes. And it's kind of interesting trying to find like what the the middle ground yeah, is on that, I but guess. But I, I think it's been bad
3: for labor over the course of the last several years. I mean, I think that's Hundred what the trend years, has been. No, 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 no. I would say that the trend line really when it comes to the tender <laughs> deadline has been the last four or five where yeah. you've seen the numbers yeah, go up. And I think what's happened is that you've seen teams devaluing the major league regular. I mean, I think in... in Ken Rosenthal's article. He had a great quote from Barry Meister about basically the rank rank and file major leaguers are the ones who are really suffering in this, and those guys who are league average to to slightly below, they're the ones that take a hit. And what ends up happening is that that the market, because that's the vast majority of players, gets flooded. Then so it helps to drive prices down. I mean, I think in the end, this acted a lot like most other you know tender deadlines, and and so you end up with a flood of extra free. Agents I mean there were a few more I think it was what close To 60 right this mm-hmm. year and last year it was like 53 yes. so you you End up with a bunch of guys that are going to drive down the price on those league average regulars or slightly below league average. I think where the difference comes in this year was on what would seem to be modest cost options that were declined or reasonable cost mm-hmm. options for decline. That to me is where the big difference was. So Morton would fit in that range. Carlos Santana to some degree would fit in that range. I realize he only mm-hmm. hit like a buck ninety nine last year, but like it was sixty games, so whatever, right. you know. And that guy's been pretty. Mm-hmm. Dur- and uh high on base corner yeah. he you know, was corner awesome bat. in
1: 2019 yeah
3: yeah and he's like i mean checks all the in- intangible boxes and all that too mm-hmm. so so like the, the, you start to see that even adam eaton i think was like 10 and a half was what his option was, was to get seven and a half from the, the white Sox like if he had had a, a relatively normal year in terms of length there's a good chance that Washington ends up picking that up. So rather than the tender deadline, I think in retrospect, what it looks like is that those options, those reasonable options of guys like that and Colton Wong Colton or are Wong, what, yeah. what helped to create this extra glut on the market. But again, they're all guys that are in the same role. The really great players didn't have their contracts. You know, they have their options picked up and they're also the ones that are going to get paid this month.
2: As always. As always. Right. I mean, as always. You know it's there's gonna be just enough there's gonna be just enough teams it seems where they're they're gonna be kind of on that more aggressive end of the spectrum Uh, the Mets the Jays you know whomever right like that's and and that's gonna help too I think is that you've got some teams that like historically you wouldn't put in that group right like the Mets certainly are not historically in that upper tier group so when I see them uh, you know basically getting close with McCann like what what's the next thing right George Springer like, that right. that's sort of, and like, I think no one would be shocked by that. So, uh, which is crazy to say, given that franchise, Toronto has been acting that way, like they, they came out early, and, and put some money in early. So, uh, you know, I think that's sort of is, is a element of this, too, is that you've got some franchises that historically haven't been. As involved, and and yeah, maybe they help in, in some sense pick up the slack because you know you got some other teams that are kind of going backwards in this you, period, which which you can kind of see.
3: But I think you always are going to pay for premium talent. I mean, I think that's the thing that we've we've always learned at free agency is that the high end of the market is always going to get paid with the high end of the market is going to get paid. I mean, I don't think that there's been a year where that didn't happen. Even in what, what was the misery of two years ago in the winter, Machado and Harper got their money in the end, right? Yeah. They both got over $300 million. They still got paid. So like, I don't think that that's, even if there were, everybody were saying, oh, we're going to cut costs, we're going to cut costs. Somebody's going to pay those players what they're worth. What's changed is is the value that no longer does, does uh, what is the, the line about like a rising tide, you know, lifting all, all, lifting all Mm -hmm. ships, right. That's not the case in free agency anymore. And so what's happened is that, that, You know, okay, those guys are getting their money, but then it's not pulling everybody else up in the market because teams aren't as desperate because they have a better idea of or or are more committed to the idea that if a guy is a league average player, you know, you can replace him with a league average player regardless of the position, you know, or you can you can find that guy relatively cheaply now. I mean, in the last five years, that's changed significantly. I mean, think about this. Like five years ago, we were talking about what Jeff Samarja, Mike Leak getting these like seven. $25, Eighty-five million dollar yeah. contracts, right? Like those guys, pitchers like that on the free agent market now. You know, like what? Like let's use Jake Rizzi as an example, right? Jake Rizzi is pretty good pitcher. I know he had a bad statistical mm-hmm. year in his four starts and had some weird injuries, but like what's a reasonable number for him like three and 30 like three and 30 you know like half yeah. basically what leak and and or less than half than what of what Samarja got for yeah. you know almost half that time so we're not seeing those double double markets anymore because of that and I think is and this is where I, I want a soapbox about the union and some of the mistakes that they continue to make like not raising up the league minimum to a point where players don't feel like, especially star players don't feel like they have to take a nine figure contract before they even reach arbitration um, to Mm. avoid free agency has been, is something that needs to be fixed because when you need to get those stars to free agency, but you also need to be able to find a way to, to make it more reasonable to see, you know, solid players get, get paid commiserate on their talent level.
1: So who's like an example of that who is a guy who like isn't – you know, didn't – like didn't get – isn't getting get paid commensurate to his level of talent. Ronald Acuna like Jr. Well, yeah. OK. I mean – that, like that feels like a specific case though.
3: Well, no, I think. I mean, you think you can make the case on just about a- anyone I mean, who signs those. I guess those.
1: Bre- Bregman's pretty similar.
3: Aloy Jimenez, I mean, has a very yeah. good chance to be that. Luis Robert might end up being that. I mean, basically, if you're taking advantage of those early on, I mean, Robert, yeah. at the very least, Robert's got a chance to be pretty special if he can yeah. tone down the strikeouts and <laughs> have a little bit better approach. And you know, listen, as, as he gets adjusted, I think he probably will. I mean, he does things that are pretty stupid, you know. But but signing those early contracts have cost them money in free agency. And and I yeah. think that there's and, and even like like the Ozzy Albies deal, like Ozzie Albies is a good player. He's not a great player, but he's a good player. And like taking that deal and taking him out of free agency probably hurts that. You know, Paul yeah. was the group of guys that got like the six and seven year $23 million guarantee, the Paul DeYoung's young's Marte, mm-hmm. um, you know, those kind of things. Maybe not the same with Kingery, He's got Kingry with the Phillies because he just hasn't been very good so far. But like that, that kind of stuff. Like you need to be able to to ensure that those contracts aren't aren't happening. I think if you're the union, so that you can get those guys to free agency to try and and ensure that players are getting paid. You know through that. And then there's right. the whole arbitration cases too, where you don't want to flood the market with free agents. So how do you handle that? Right. So we're dealing with a lot of shit here.
1: Yeah. Well, I but guess like, what the, know- qu- the the question is like if if you are. The the union and I, these two goals maybe aren't necessarily always uh, misaligned, but is is it to raise the average salary for everyone in the union, or is it for your individual members to get lifetime-changing wealth? And sometimes those things are sort of competing, right? Like that sort of financial security that some of those deals offer, guys. It's understandable why they would take them. Now, I don't, I'm not like advocating for that and saying like all players should take, you know, pre free agency deals but like I've talked to lots of guys who you know say things like well I was you know I was making the minimum I had two kids and they offered me 50 million dollars so I took it and I never had to worry about money again for the rest of my yeah,
3: life I think you have to make it tougher for them to make the decision you know if you mm-hmm. if you have a minimum salary that's let's say what is it right now Mark it's what 570 something like five, that somewhere five, right? seven, yeah. yeah so like so you're talking about like if you even double that you know what it is if you're talking about a million dollars a year and then the the basic raises that come even in renewals you know i think it makes it a little bit easier to move on to 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 at least think twice about signing that kind of contract. I mean, I don't think any player necessarily is beholden to everybody else that's in the players association to make deals for them. I think what you need to do is like, if you, if your job is to try and help get players generational wealth, that it's going to be, you're going to be limited to the 1% of players or 2% of players. Like you're not going to do that for everybody, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it's really going to affect the guys that are the fringe ones who don't, you know, by the time they pay union fees and, and dues and taxes. Taxes and all that stuff, you know, aren't aren't actually making. Uh, they're making good money. Don't get me wrong, but they're not mm-hmm. getting like we don't have to work any more money. So, I think I think that there's. A, it's tough to try and do both, but I don't know that we can be in a position where it's a star-driven system anymore.
2: Hmm. You know, those deals also kind of in the bigger picture, right? Like we've, we were talking about free agency and the mm-hmm. impact that'll have. Look, arbitration system when you don't have guys pass through the system, they can't push the bar forward for everybody that comes after them. And while that isn't as stark or dramatic as the differences you'd see in free agency, over time, it affects more players and does have a significant impact on how guys are paid, especially the group that you were talking about earlier. Right, like those dudes who yeah. might get the arbitration, but odds are they're not going to get to free agency and like be in a position to like get a major league deal, right? So, because that's just the odds of it. You've got to play six years to get to free agency, and it's a very, very hard game. So, the best chance for someone to get paid beyond the minimum then is to get to arbitration. But now the the teams have like figured out that you know, and and they are working together, by the way, which is. Not illegal, right? It's not like collusion because like they, they can work together. It's it's totally fine. But uh, I think the fact that they've done that is, is altered the arbitration system and, yeah. and in effect, like, really impacted a really large swath of players. And it's not as perceptible yeah. as free agency. It's certainly not as dramatic. But for this class of players, it's a huge deal. I think. Yeah, yeah, think I just want to say
1: hand. I feel like what I feel like what what happened with Eddie Rosario is like really troubling, I guess, long term. That like a good player just like is getting cut because he was essentially too good but not good enough in a way. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's being punished for competence.
3: Well, I think you've seen that. There's at least one guy each of the last several years that you've seen that with. I'm trying to think back who it was last year, but there's always going to be guys like that. I mean Rosario. Listen, Rosario's not a very good defender. He doesn't get on base. Like we can pick around sure. the warts on him. Certainly, you know Schwarber's another example of that. Like Schwarber probably would have been at a higher number even than eight million if he hadn't you know had an injury in 2016 that cost him most of the year. But that's a 30 homer bat with with high on base who isn't a very good outfielder, but is a a slugger. And like that, those are the numbers that tend to get paid in arbitration. I think, Mark, to your point, one of the things that's important is not just raising that minimum, but trying to ensure that if okay, if teams are telling you that service time is the most important thing, right? Like we like let's look at the Lance Lynn trade, right? Dane mm. Dunning's decent pitching prospect. I like him maybe a little bit more than some evaluators do, but most have him kind of pegged as a back end of the rotation guy. But he's got
2: I, six years still, right?
3: Yeah, he's got six years of control, right? Yeah. So but if he's a back end starter and he really is like a number five starter and maybe just a shade below the league average, like the Rangers are going to non tender him after year one of arbitration. And that's going to flood the free agent market again. And so, what has to happen, I think, in those arbitration. Years are if a team is going to value six years of service time, then they should be committed to six years of service time. Or there needs to be something that happens. This is all really complicated stuff that I don't fully understand because I'm an idiot. I mean, like I I mean, like I'm a broadcaster. But, yeah. but like, and, it, and it's not something I think that can necessarily be fixed in the next CBA without a significant kind of shutdown, which I really think is disastrous for um, the sport overall and the long-term health of both sides if they do shut down, especially after what happened this past summer. So, but there are some serious things that need to be adjusted in terms of the structure of the way contracts are, are handled. I mean, this arbitration structure is, you know, what close to 50 years old right like uh. I mean, we have to modernize these collective bargaining agreements and the and the contract system to be able to fit the way the game is played now and I don't I personally do not think the union has done a particularly good job of advocating for those spots to try and move things forward because the the owners aren't going to the owners are going to take the system if it's benefits them they're going to keep <laughs> right hey man right. like we, we don't have any issue to change the, the players want to change it they should change it and i would hope that at some point they do decide to
1: but what are the what do the players have to offer back in exchange for making the big league minimum you know 1.5 expanded playoffs and so okay so they can offer basically the destruction of the sport well that's what they that's what they have to offer essentially is you know we're going to we're going to ruin the game i mean that's
3: it's going to happen regardless I mean, there's too much yes. money at stake, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, like, what, I mean, Where I are mean, you at on that? What, what do you got I'm, on I'm the expanded play? So, like, you mean to the, the plan to have seven in each league? I don't e, love e, it. But, I mean, just I the mean, general the, in general. I think. The, the purest in me tends to come out more. I mean, I mm-hmm. I I really, our our friend uh, Nick Picoro uh, gave me a hard time about this this summer when I told him that I really just didn't care as a fan about the postseason as much as I do the regular season because I love the grind of the regular season. And he was like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, you're telling me if the Diamondbacks won the World Series, that wouldn't be quite as exciting. I'm like, well, no, obviously that would be exciting, but they're two <laughs> completely different things that we're talking about. We're talking about, 162 game you know i don't want to say necessarily battle of attrition but like you're 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 playing every day you're going to work every day and competing for six months with 20 off days and then you have this all of a sudden there's a magical schedule at the end where everybody resets and you know with the exception of, of of the last couple of years the best team isn't isn't necessarily going to win it it's that's part of what makes the playoffs exciting and playoff baseball is exciting for reason for different reasons but to me they're completely separate than what the regular season and what the playoffs are so I think you're right it cheapens the regular season I mean I think one of baseball's great assets is the volume of games that it has Mm -hmm. and I don't think we do Mm -hmm. a good enough job of treating it like that's one of their great assets but I also think that that you know like the there's obviously going to be significantly more money made because that's the chance to make money is in the postseason and everybody wants more money because, everybody wants to get paid more. And, and the more money, the more coverage, the more we're going to be able to be employed. Maybe we even, you know, get some, some cushy postseason assignments at some point, you know, that, that we wouldn't otherwise. And so that, that, I mean, I guess maybe that's trickle down economic theory, which I don't know that yeah, I necessarily yeah, no, buy into, but, stuff, man. but, but that's certainly the
4: way that, that I would think that both the owners and players are looking at that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
2: What's kind of scary about all of this to me, anyway, is that we, we like to look for precedent and history to kind of give us a sense of what will come forward, and so much of this feels unprecedented. And, and I mean that, like, look, they've had fights, right? Obviously, that's not unprecedented. <clears throat> But this is such so much more of a sophisticated, complicated machine that they're trying to like deal with right now when compared to 30 years ago. Yeah. The stakes are so much yeah. higher than they were 30 years ago. There's more opportunity to try to make your case publicly now than there has ever been before. And you could argue, and we've seen this kind of in the general conversation, that those efforts are more sophisticated than they've ever been before, too. And so it it's like kind of like, you know, to me when I look at it and I hear conversations like this, it kind of sends a chill up my spine because I, I it's really difficult to even know how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's nothing to really compare it to, and I think sometimes comps are like bring comfort in a weird way because you can kind of know what to expect. and, And yeah, the general framework is there. We know it's a labor fight but I just think there's so many aspects of this that we don't know that the consequences are things we can't even really fathom right now.
3: Well, and I think, I think you're talking about something that's contentious by nature because Mm -hmm. it's, it's a collectively bargained issue between, between labor and management and then add into it the fact that they're, that, you know, one side may not feel like they're being treated fairly in terms of the percentage of compensation that they're getting for the revenue and, and, you know, the players are the reason why go to games, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a financial flexibility pennant in the office yet, but I might get one, you know, maybe I can get that championship (laughs) belt from arbitration a couple of years ago and see if I can put that up. That'd be great. Um, but, But so like we, we go to see, so they understand that they're a huge part of the product and the owners from their sake, from their standpoint, are paying out a significant amount of money on on salaries and they feel like they're the ones that are risking significantly more. And so they they want to make sure that 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 they're getting their fair share or what they feel like is their fair share of the money as well. And then you add into that the fact that there are those more um, there's so many more platforms to try and raise the tension level. I mean, it it is similar to the political discussions that we have in the country now. There, there's very, because we take everything in in our jobs as these sound bites and these quick reactions and all of this to try and get the news out faster. It can leave very little room for nuance, and I think when that happens, you end up with. Uh, you can end up with more hard feelings more anger and 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 more vitriol between the sides but Mm -hmm. you know I I mean I think that that's but some of this is just the nature of of labor negotiations Mm -hmm. too and I think the Mm. other part of it that has changed is that we now have more coverage of labor negotiations than we ever have before we also have to cover all of these issues. And so we have a tendency to be more reactionary about what's going on and what sure. is typically, you know, like if this were I, I don't know, if this were the the you know the postal workers union, we probably wouldn't be having these same kind of conversations about it. But it's so high profile, we have to feed the monkey man. And so like in the end, we end up contributing to or, or at least drawing conclusions from the contentious nature of it based on the fact that that we see these two sides fighting, and we really have no idea what's going on because we're broadcasters and journalists. We don't have degrees in collective bargaining. <laughs> yes, we're not brain Seriously. surgeons. We're not, we're not brain surgeons. Well, you know, <laughs> not, not, not everybody can be, but, but we also are really bad at covering collective bargaining as an industry. Yeah. Like, we are really bad at it, and I learned some of that the summer in, in talking to some people who are labor attorneys, like we suck at it. <laughs>
1: <We> <laughs> they they just no think we're like the we're stupidest doing. people on the planet, huh? Like we, I've had some similar conversations. These people just think we are morons, and they might be right.
2: Well, yeah, because what they can't like uh, to me, what the thing that really shapes all of that is that you've got a scenario in which you've got two combatants and only one side is accessible. Yeah more yeah. or less so yeah. that's that automatically just changes the chessboard totally compared yeah. to like another type of business where you know that you know both sides actually talk both sides act like that's not what exists in baseball at all and 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 so it's actually gotten worse and it was another point i was going to make about it and why this is so different like there were you know let's go back 30 years ago like you would hear about some player ending up on waivers by accident because the GM's screwed up. Yeah. Right. 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 Salou. Right. Voice right, right, so like, ended up was, on waivers yeah. because Oops. they asked for the wrong waivers on him. Exactly. So stuff like that would happen. And, and so, like, I, and I and I bring that. That's an obviously an extreme example, but like, it is reflective of the level of what we're dealing with here. So you've gone from that to oh shit, put him on waivers. With an accident. My bad. Don't claim him. Help me out, guys. And they would. By the way, they'd like uh, don't touch him. They'd make their little agreement and he'd stay where he's supposed to be. But. Could you imagine that shit happening now? Huh? Yeah, and like the, the, the age of like, you know, consultants to come in and basically, yeah, tell us how many baseball people we can lay off and still be fine with. That's what happens in the game today. They, we are. Uh, covering people who are beholden to efficiency first, it feels like. And so are those people going to like, these are the folks that are driving this conversation. I I
3: don't think that it's, I I mean, now I haven't worked in any other industry other than media and I've covered only baseball for the last what close to 15 years. So it's tough for me to have um, any real perspective because it's been a long time. It's been 20 years since I had a retail job even. So like I, I, it's, I'm not entirely sure, but I would assume that this is what's going on in every industry, that this is the battle between – this is the new battle between labor and management right? Like this is different than a hundred years ago. You know, this is like, whoever's going to write the jungle for this is probably not <laughs> going to be focused on, on food safety so much as you know, how, how does everybody get their piece of the pie? Cause there should be plenty to go around. And so, yeah, you're right. There are efficiency experts and there are consultants and there are, you know, you're trying to find the most efficient way um, to, you know, build a, a contender or to be able to be the most profitable in, in this, but I don't know that it's any different than any other place. And some of it is just the the throes of modern business school. And until somebody finds a more effective way or better way or changes it, it's, you know, we're going to keep going down the same path, but somebody will, I mean, it will happen. It might take another 10 years, 20 years, whatever. And it may not necessarily change for the better, but it's going to change.
1: Michael, let me tell you about an economic system called capitalism and how it affects all of the American life. Do you have uh, 45 minutes?
3: I, I would be excited to talk about that, Andy, because I do like <laughs> making money.
1: So yeah, Well, all right. I, I don't feel like doing this. Farron, uh, what was your retail job?
3: <laughs> uh, my retail job was, so when I quit my job in Indiana, because I just hated it, um, I went and moved home and I worked in the music department at Borders. Ooh. Oh shit!
2: <laughs> I was I really that. good too. I had been I a classic rock
3: disc jockey, so like I was like oh, all. Oh man! I used I to get secret totally shopped all the time, and like they was, I would end up with like the thirty dollars gift cards. Could you, could you tell?
2: Could you tell? Could you spot a secret shopper?
3: Never. I never did, but I didn't. Wow. Pay. I just treated everybody well. Wow. Which is what's changed in me. It's very
2: out of I'm character for you. Yeah, family. now you don't yeah.
1: have time for it. Terrible. Yeah, now you hey, won't buy a lousy beer at the
2: fucking winter meetings.
1: But anyway. Speaking of giving up and uh, <laughs> going back home, uh, so I've been thinking, uh, you know, like the, the Phillies, gonna right? going to get a little personal. No, 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 no. The The Phillies are uh, sort of like in the post-trying uh, oh, era. The Reds, you know, trading uh, Rysel Iglesias, you know, non-tendering Archie Bradley there, paring down, um, you know, looks like they might try and trade Sonny Gray. And these were both teams who engaged in kind of, uh, you know, Hard tanking, you know not maybe not as like uh extreme as say what the what the Orioles are doing, but they <laughs> were you know more or less they tore down, and I guess what I'm wondering is from your perspective like if there's lessons to be learned from the way those things have gone like wh- what what do you think the state of tanking is in twenty twenty
3: well i so Buster only wrote about this the other day, or, or at least highlighted. I think Sam Miller's finale at ESPN yeah, Sam had on something this right? on, the, on the Phillies. Yeah, so it focused on the Phillies, but but what it ignored was that, and you can throw the Reds into this too, I guess. But the the vast majority of the teams that have gone through this have been playoff teams now, right? They, they, mm-hmm. I mean, you start going through the teams that have torn all the way down and you know the Cubs the Astros the White Sox the you know all of these teams that have done it have gotten to the postseason and have been you know it have been primed or look primed to have long runs I mean whether this is the end for the Astros or not I mean they've been to the postseason what five of the last six years Cubs went five out of six times each of them won a World Series championship um you know they do not have the resources necessarily well i think in the cubs case they didn't do a good job of reallocating their resources mm-hmm. uh, along the way as mm-hmm. they were taking on you know more contracts and decided to launch their own television network and stuff like that but like, th- there there are some teams that, that have done a better job of trying to keep that window open, but all of them, and I think Seattle is going to probably bear fruit here pretty soon, and they've got a chance to be pretty good. Like, they have really good position player prospects and really good starting prospects. I think they're, for the most part, we're going to be hitting like 800 on those, uh, on the mm-hmm. ones over the course of the last decade. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Detroit. I don't know what's going to happen with Baltimore, although I would argue that both of their situations were – they were more traditional in the sense that they had bottomed out tigers Mm -hmm. kept the tried to keep the window open as long as they possibly could they couldn't do it anymore there's only one way you can go and then you have to build up talent from within baltimore remember baltimore there were the year that they lost what 117 games or whatever it was i had two colleagues former general managers that picked them to win the division that year. That was supposed (laughs) to be a good team. Right. And it it wasn't. And so like that bottomed out. So like there, those aren't teams that like, like the white Sox or the Mariners that were in the middle and had good assets and, and sunk them. I mean, I think what you have to look at is the decision-making from the organization and what they did. And like with with in the case of the Phillies, they just never really developed enough talent. I mean, they got really high risk, high reward prospects back from the Rangers and none of them panned out. None of them panned out. I mean, who was Uh the best player that came back in that deal? Jared Ikoff? Yeah, probably. You know, like who was like the fifth piece, right? Yeah. Like, so like that ended up not working. And that was, again, it you know, was a previous administration and they were very like tools oriented, but I understood why they made the Hamels deal that those guys made sense for them in the reds case. They, they were, you know, they had kind of gotten to the point where they were going to need to trade guys and they, they traded Cueto and they didn't get a ton back for him because right. of when they did it. Um, and so like you're, going through a, a, a rebuild and you have to identify the right talent in the organization. You have to draft well at the top of the draft. You have to make smart trades. You have to win those margins. You need to get the the guy who you know looks like he might be an or guy but one of your scouts thinks an adjustment or pd guys thinks he can make an adjustment to bring him to a regular you need to hit on all those things and i think if you don't get there then you need to have a significant internal evaluation about why you made the choices you did and where you missed and and how you have to fix that and it's probably going to be somebody else who's going to be the general manager that fixes it Mm -hmm. i don't I don't love the idea of punting a season. I, I think that there are times that you have to do it. Like I said with Baltimore and Detroit, where you're just kind of you're forced down that road, you know. Uh, but I think that that just to use those two teams as a referendum against what things have gone is probably disingenuous as well, mm. because because it ignores the teams that have had success doing it. I also think that they did it at a time when there was probably less um, benefit from it because there were more teams that were going through it. So if more teams are Mm -hmm. doing it, then there's probably fewer opportunities for that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in the case of like Seattle and the White Sox, they were actually starting from a little bit better talent base, trading some really talented players in order to get, you know, some of this group of of can't miss guys that would be stars going forward.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's interesting kind of contrasting like the teams who did the hard tanks with clubs like the a's the brewers and like even the d-backs right who like have threaded the needle from through contention cycles and like i'm curious actually you know with the d-backs right like i tease you a lot because you know you work for them or whatever it is you do um because i wear
3: sedona red colored glasses because you yeah
1: (laughs) because like you're the mascot half the time or something but like the organization does a lot of things right they play a good brand of baseball they clearly like have an identity that makes a lot of sense and they're also just because of like the fact that they play in the west with the dodgers like in a very very difficult position and so i'm just kind of wondering like for teams in that spot who like want to contend but you know are either unable or unwilling to spend the financial resources like how do you how do you get past the super teams i guess well, they haven't yet, so I don't know that I have a good answer for that.
3: you know. And now the Padres are pretty good, and the right. Giants are about ready to be fully operational, which is kind of scary. So yeah. um, I think it's just trying – I mean, I, th- I don't think that there's anything that really is reinventing the wheel. I think what they have tried to do is – take advantage of where there is an inefficiency in the marketplace, which has been that there have been these kind of league average players that have been available that are Mm -hmm. upgrades over maybe what they had who aren't going to be, too expensive compared to what they've done, um, you know, over the course of their their of what other guys would be who might be a little bit better, or what what you would expect them to be over the course of their career, and try and get the most that they can out of like the Cole Calhouns or training for Eduardo Escobar and getting them on a reasonable contract, then beyond that, and you know, finding those players who are pretty good and, and and just pretty good players like having a lot of pretty good players is good you need a star to build around they had that with Paul Goldschmidt um mm-hmm. they they i think they still have it with Ketel Marte even though the the power numbers weren't there in the in the shortened season um so you need some of that and you need that player to be relatively inexpensive and then you have to draft and develop and you have to make smart trades so you have to know when your, you have to do as good a job or a better job of scouting your system as you do others, I think, because I think you have to have an understanding of who the guys are that are can't miss that can't be touched because you need those players in their control years. And then you have to find the ones that are going to be attractive to the industry that you really don't believe in, so that you can add major leaguers to your roster mm-hmm. to be able to help out. And hopefully ones that are that are um inexpensive. I think it's why the the and and not that I th- don't think this guy's gonna be a pretty good player. I think he's got a, a real chance to be, but the Jazz Chisholm for Zach Gallon trade is a really fascinating one. I mean, that's like a straight-up baseball trade. Most of yes, the challenge financial Transactions overall, but like this is <laughs> this was like two rookies traded for one another. And like they're they both have a chance to be pretty good. They filled a need for for each spot. They knew they needed Gallon. I think Gallon is, I mean, you guys have seen Gallon. Gallon's really good. He's really good. Really boy. good. And he's mm-hmm. gonna explode. That was a great identification to figure out that 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 he was good and that he was available. So mm-hmm. I think making those kind of deals makes sense. And then it can't, you can't be afraid to have to rip the band-aid off. You have to do a little bit of the Tampa maybe not to the same degree that they do with the Rays, but like when Paul Goldschmidt has a year left and he's 32 Mm -hmm. years old, you probably have to disappoint your fan base and trade him so that you can get players back that can help. And Mm -hmm. they got, you know, solid players and Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver who aren't stars, but are solid. And again, trying to build out that base and then, you know, continue to be as competitive as possible and hopefully you're adding at the deadline or if you're if you are out of the race you need to be aggressive in trading players away to be able to replenish that to be able to have that next group that next wave of players ready so um i think it's a it's not really all that untraditional in its manner. Mm. Maybe it's just different because it, it looks like the way teams operated for, you know, throughout the <laughs> 60s or good teams, you know, teams that were competitive largely throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s.
2: Yeah, that's the context that makes it look different. For right. Sure. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of root for him just for the sense of it, you want teams to do that. You want them to try. You want them to like, Put resources into acquiring good ball players, and uh, yeah, like, are they have they been as talented as the Dodgers? Clearly not, but is it it possible to assemble a well-crafted team that, if you get them in the playoff series against the Dodgers, like, has a shot? Sure, in this sport, absolutely. So, I, I think. Uh, it, it's it's been interesting. It's been fun to watch the way they operate, and I'm glad you brought up Gallon because to me, like just this season for the shortened season, like uh, you know, it got to the point where like, I didn't want to miss a start. Yeah, I just I just liked the way he went out there and got after it, and it was kind of intriguing too because he plays in Arizona, is an easy guy to overlook. Yeah. But, you know, and the Marlins have made this habit of trading away some really good pitchers. And at the end of the day, he might end up being the best one. I mean, he, I, I was super impressed by him. I know you see him all the time, but like, yeah, it was like, it, it was kind of a point viewing. If he was on the bump, like, I, I would try to see some of that game.
3: Yeah. I mean, Marlins still have some pretty good pitching there, too. And, and they yeah. traded, it, they, they did, you know, deal him away. Yeah. He's, you know he has the starter kit for what you expect to be a guy like he's he's it's not a fair comparison because their stuff is different but he's kind of that Nola type you know where it's like no one thing really blows you away but then you watch everything together and you're like oh yeah this and then add in the competitiveness and the really really thick um you know philadelphia area accent and like it's just <laughs> like he's very south jersey in the way he talks and there's something in the water that really allows him to to tap into to, to that and i and and i think that that's you know i mean okay so like he's a star level player potentially right Marte is a star level player but the other part of this comes into the on field stuff which is execution and they were really bad at doing mm. this year at doing the things that they generally have done really well the things that that you guys appreciate in watching them they have been a very good base running team they have been an excellent yeah. defensive team <laughs> they have not beaten themselves because when you're when you're david you can't miss with that first rock that you fire at goliath yes. you've got to hit and you've got to be able to have you, you you just have to be able to to win those margins and that's where they had been really successful
4: and need to get back to if they're going to be competitive again in 2021.
1: I remember when I was covering the Royals, I used to Dayton Moore, and I would sometimes talk about this idea of like, if fans are invested in a in the way a team plays baseball, like the style, and you know, he would just kind of ask like open ended, like, "Do you think it matters that we play the way we play?" And my answer would always be, "I think team, I think fans like winning. I think yeah. they want to see that the the team win. They don't necessarily care in what way they do it, but I think I might have been wrong about that. I think." Or is that just too much of a a negative reaction to watching all the pitching changes and, you know, platooning and all that sort of stuff in the postseason? Like, do you have a take on that? Do you think there is a certain aesthetic style that teams should shoot for? Or do you think the goal should just be to try and win?
3: No, I think – I mean, I think – if you are employed by a team, your goal is to win because that's what's going to keep your job or at least it should be you know that, that's that's the only thing that matters is that yeah. you you win. So I don't think that it's m- matters stylistically. I kind of disagree on the aesthetics. I mean I think mm. I think um we tend to, romanticize the baseball that we grew up with and then we we do the same thing that John Smoltz does right we romanticize the era that we remember best and then try and apply it to the current era right losing sight of what was both the good and bad or reasons why things were successful or weren't so I grew up in the 80s so like I love like the Eric Davis you know Daryl Strawberry like crazy like awesome athletic like 30, 30 guys like playing all over the field and slapping the ball around and hitting and run and watching the Cardinals steal bases and all that stuff. It doesn't mean it was good baseball. It's just the baseball that I remember. And I think mm-hmm. if you go back and watch a game from 1982, like, like at the beginning of the shutdown, they ran the famous, car, the, the Phillies Cubs the twenty three twenty two game, like watch mm-hmm. that game. Go back and watch that game. Do yourself a favor and watch it. See how far you can get into it before you're like, <laughs> I'm out. Like this is terrible. <laughs> this is awful. Why has everybody got a close stance? You know, <laughs> like like why is everybody slapping the ball on the ground? You know, yeah. like why why is Randy Lurch throwing seventy two mile an hour fastballs?
2: Yeah, that's the one that stands up the most. Whenever I see games from that era. You see these pitchers out there who aren't even in particularly great shape, not throwing particularly hard. You know they're up to the hundred and fortieth pitch, and it's the same stuff. Like you know, like missing all over the place. Like it's just not as skilled. And like I, I hate saying that, like I'm bagging on them because I'm not. No, like when the context of their time, they were they were freaking the best in the world. Go watch but, Seaver's like, no it's hitter. Different.
3: It's the same thing. Mm. Like go watch mm-hmm. Seaver's
2: no hitter, and you're not you.
3: You look at it now in the context of what you see. And go, man. What like is it? Is it really that dominant of stuff? But like you're watching the hitters reacting. I guess right. it is. You know, like <laughs> so. It's yeah. it's. Oh, you're right. It's entirely in context.
0: 100%. I mean, I,
3: I think if I could change one thing, it would be the pacing issue. I really think that the hmm. style of play, the one that you find so aesthetically displeasing, Andrew, um, with the strikeouts and the It could dangers, just be, by the
1: way, that I just don't like baseball. Well, that's always a possibility. That could just be the possibility. But you also so hate people, just, so you're in the right line of work. I never said I liked anything. Love's like, words, Anyway, though. sorry, go. Is there? A, yeah, that's true.
2: Is there a physical aspect to that, too, though? Because I've read that, right, that some of the time between pitches – is literally people getting physically ready to throw another baseball 100 miles an hour. And then to, to, to get yourself physically ready to do that again, over and over and over again, is gonna require more time in between. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I've read that
3: too, and yeah, I think it, it does, but have we seen a drop in velocity in the minor leagues where they've had a pitch clock for how long? I mean, I do it doesn't seem like we have, and the games have gotten shorter. So mm-hmm. maybe except for the PCL in twenty nineteen, because I don't know if you know this ball was really high yeah, that year. Right, but right, for the right, most part, people. at like double A, A ball, you know, where the pitch clock is gone, they've been the, the games got shorter and guys mm-hmm. still threw hard. So I I think I think yes, on the surface, that would be my buy-in on it. Was like, yeah, it probably does. But I don't necessarily know if you want a game that's more active, where more balls are put in play, do you want guys that you know, the throw ninety four, ninety five instead of ninety seven, ninety eight. Maybe, you know, maybe that's maybe that's a, you know not a, a bad thing necessarily. Maybe it promotes pitcher health too to not necessarily yeah. have that ramped up. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it makes them more susceptible to injury because they're uh, more fatigued with every pitch that they throw. But but I I don't know the answer to it at all. But I would think that I mean I would just like to see it all happen faster.
1: Isn't the the issue less uh, velocity than just movement? Like, like I I wonder, you know, wouldn't I mean they should just ban the sticky stuff, or at the very least have a standard issue sticky stuff that you should only uh, be
3: allowed to throw three off-speed or breaking pitches per at bat, and then everything will be fine. Oh
1: no, no, no! You can't do that to Rich Hill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you, you're you taking you're taking bread off rich hill's table no, I, I, can't just,
3: no, just three straight curveballs and it's game over
1: well that to me like because people talk about like banning the shift like i don't like that i don't i don't, I don't like the idea of regulating the shift i think i think i, I want Eye-wash. fewer rules i want fewer rules like i i think the, the every time you add a rule it becomes there's unintended consequences um so That's but a, it seems like getting rid of sticky stuff or at least regulating it uh, would be a way to make it so that every pitcher who comes into the game isn't the best pitcher you've ever seen.
3: I do think that there's something about like the anticipation that's so as a broadcaster like I love those anticipatory moments. You're in the big spot late in the game the big hitter gets into the three1 count and everybody knows the fastball is coming right and you want to know what's happened and it's taken maybe because we th- that predictability, has happened. I'm just, because I've not heard this before. I'm just kind of thinking through this because that predictability has happened. We take less out of those anticipatory moments because we're just anticipating right. like, okay, well it's three, one, he's going to get a breaking ball here, right? Like it's going to be a strike and then it's gonna be three to be 3 2 And then he's just swing a slider in the dirt and then it's gonna be over. So it takes that, <laughs> it takes us out of that moment and that edge that we have as a fan where we want to be on the edge of our seat for what we anticipate is the big moment.
2: It's a great way to put it too. It's about the weight. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think we forget that part of the equation so much. We focus on action, 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 action. Yet this is a sport that is predicated on appreciating and anticipating and kind of that big moment. The lead up is just as good. Right. So it's um, yeah. And I guess like some of that that uh, the takeaway from that is reduced when there's just so many t- instances where you can predict and, and do it accurately. And, yeah. that, and that kind of and so that's why when that when that so this yeah, this longtime executive said that, like it, I kind of stopped for a second. I was like, damn, that's a, a great way to put it.
3: But I I wonder if we could do a better job as broadcasters of selling those anticipatory moments. I mean, you were were fortunate, Mark, in that you get to grow up listening to Bill King, who I think is one of the best ever at making you feel like every moment you were on the edge of your seat. In fact, I think there was something that he talked about uh, about once that he said – you know, if you're listening to the game and I can get you and just make that little twist that I know I have you. Right. And he was so good at that. And I think we spend so much time presenting facts, information stories that at times we lose sight of building that anticipation and excitement for the moment. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not even the moment, like you want the payoff as a fan, right? Like you want, you want your guy to hit the three run Homer in that spot, but the you know on the 3-1 pitch when he fouls it back that's a big moment and it's like oh gosh you know and then you get frustrated again like you have to be able to play the the excitement levels off of all of that and i i don't know that we necessarily do a good job of that as a as a whole as announcers in playing up those moments
2: Interesting. I love that you got a Bill King reference in here. That makes my Bill day King right is
3: like Bill King is the, the man. He is the man. He's maybe mm-hmm. the greatest basketball announcer of all time. I think he's one of the most underrated baseball announcers of all time. Mm-hmm. And he, I'm like Bill King. If you've never listened to Bill King do a baseball game, like go find him because you can find him on no. the internet. Man, they are so They're good.
2: Great. Go listen to the Raider clips. Yeah, every every Raider moment of the seven holy roller is. is Bill King just being amazing at his job, and by the way, Kenny Korak, like, mm-hmm. who worked with and like took over, like Ken's great at that too. Actually, yeah. I think like it's been fun. Like Bay Area people are lucky, man. Like there, are, there's a lot of great announcing on both sides of the Bay. Pat Hughes in
3: Chicago. If you get to those big moments, and Pat is, Pat is very, very regimented in the way he speaks and the way he he sets situations up. But in those big moments he knows how to draw you into him. And that you grew up listening to Bill King.
1: I don't watch much baseball. So I don't, you know, I don't know <laughs> kind of what you guys are talking about. Why do but. you hate baseball so much? I, I don't, you hate make baseball. all these jokes about it all the time. It's like, I don't watch much
3: baseball. I don't do that. Like, like you, like you work for the Athletic, you don't have a deadline. Like, why aren't you just watching baseball? <laughs> Seriously, like it drives me. It drives me fucking nuts, Andy. Like I will sit in the press box and be like, I don't watch, I haven't watched a game in six months. Screw <laughs> you. Like this Holy is. Oh, Toledo. <laughs>
1: First of all, Michael. Michael, I spent nine years on the beat. OK, I spent nine years. You don't know what that's like. Oh, no. OK, yeah. you've only been dressing up like, you know, the d dinosaur for like four so or five. Your okay? life
3: is so hard, Andy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I like baseball. I just joke about it. You know, it's because every because here's the thing. I don't work for baseball and I don't and I don't. And, and maybe you and I maybe slightly differ uh, uh, about this. And that's fine. Like, I don't like look down on people who feel this way, but like I don't think that as a journalist my job necessarily is to like um help the sport promote itself better or like, you know, be more exciting or, or anything no. like that. Like I don't I don't work for the sport. Like I'm just interested in like the people involved and in telling stories about that. And so this is my like defense mechanism, you know, that I put up uh to because I just, you know, don't really like I don't know. I I don't always think that we should be we should spend a lot of time Worrying about like what's good for baseball, like I think about what's good for my readers. I guess.
3: Well, and I think that that's I think that's actually and sometimes those things intertwine. Yeah, so I I think that's really healthy because I think you need a balance of both things. I spend a lot of time. Listen, I'm a broadcaster on a uh, you know for a team. You know, I work for a team and a team broadcaster, and I also work for a rights holder. You know, and a lot of what I want people to listen to baseball on the radio because I want them to to have that experience. I want them to enjoy baseball. That it's a different role. It's why I'm not a journalist. I'm a broadcaster. And there's a significant difference. I make there are times where I'm a reporter where I'm delivering to you the facts of what's happening in a situation, but I'm not someone who is is allowed to by nature of their job to be dispassionate about the subject sure. or to take that away. I don't think that that's that's I don't think that's possible. So let me throw this one at you, because I thought about this the other day, and I'm, I'm starting to ask people about it. We talked about how players are probably better than they were. The game looks different than it did in the 70s and the 80s and all of this, right? The same could certainly be said for executives, right? So mm-hmm. I'm curious, if you were to think, and don't name names, you don't, or you don't have to name names, but whoever you think is the worst general manager in baseball, In what year would you have to go back to for them to be the best general manager in baseball?
2: 2005. I'd say about 2005. No,
1: you have to go farther.
3: I think you might have to go a little bit further than that. You think so? Yeah, because... Because Theo was already around in 2005. Changing things, Billy Bean was around in 2005. I don't think that the guys who, who are at the bottom of the, yeah. the group, whoever you would rank at the bottom, now would be there. I think Ooh. you have to
1: go back to like oh, so they have to be the best of the bunch. Not you like have to just go back good. to it 1981. To one. You have to go to 1981 when Sandy Alderson took over the A's. And that's even, that's at best. Because I'm sure there was someone in 1980 who was better than the guy I have at 30 right now. So I, yeah, I mean, I'd I, uh, yeah, you'd have to go back a really long way.
3: What about number twenty nine? <laughs> how far back do you have to go for number twenty well, nine? I know okay. I know that that's now, no, 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 now, but, but you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. I think it's kind of a fun exercise to speak to like to what, what Mark was talking about. How like like yeah, there, there's competency, like there's general competency. You can go back no, and you're take right, you're right. most every executive and go back through baseball history and there would be a point where they would be the best or among the best, right? Even the ones who you would look at and are at the bottom of of however way you would to evaluate frame it,
1: them now. The way to frame it is you could take the guy who's theoretically like the fifth worst at the job now. And if you go back twenty years, that guy might be top five. Yeah. Whoever Well, that is. well I, I think you know, okay. a great that's, example yeah. of this is Andy McPheel.
3: Like and not to not I mean, listen, Andy's had a great career and tremendous baseball family and a huge part of it, <clears> but <throat> like the Phillies are in disarray right now with him as the president, but think back oh. to 1986 and 1987 when he was running the, the twins and man, he was the best executive in baseball, right? Like that's right. the same, same guy, right? Like he went through the transitions with, you know, some rough years with the Cubs then some pretty good ones when he was running it. And then like, there's, there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of, of just in that, in his career arc in watching how the people have changed around him as, as he's, you know, he's evolved, but how, you know, mm-hmm. how he, he has kind of fit into it. I don't think you would put him in the top five executives right now. And you, you might put him in the bottom five. And I hope I'm not offending Andy to say that. I probably am. But like that guy's accomplished more in baseball than I ever will. But it's just the way that the
2: game has evolved overall. Hey, I thought you were going to paint your office. Farron, like, so Farron referenced this earlier, Andy. Like we had a pretty testy text exchange about some dorky ass baseball thing. But it began with Farron going, hey, your office wall is nice, or your your wall your collar is nice. Like, what is that? And then I went down to the basement, went unearthed all the cans, like found like the actual paint color and send it. And now I look at his office right now on this call. And that is not so, the color that is on my wall. So what the hell is going on here? It wasn't for
3: my office. It was for my wife's. Oh, oh, my wife oh. wanted it. I think for our bedroom or something else. And she decided to go with a very light pink in her office so she's taken over so she has she she is a an executive like a, a marketing and communications director who is working at home who unfortunately is just on the other side of this closet that's to my right and so she has to she has today put up with like six and a half hours of my loud ass just making noise <laughs> while she's trying to like save the world and sustainability yeah and like right yeah. before we recorded this she was like you were really loud today i was like it's gonna get worse (laughs) it's just it's
1: just you shouting jim would you rather have george springer for eight years or jt Muto for six just Uh, over and over over by the way hot chocolate um
3: came from our producer hunter walking into the studio with hot chocolate at 10 a.m one day just going (laughs) hot chocolate He was all fired up about it.
2: I love it. Full circle, baby.
3: That way, that's my my doppelganger, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, you know Hunter. Hunter's my doppelganger? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. DC Andy, they call him. If you've listened to this much, Mike Farron, you clearly are a masochist. (laughs) And if you've listened to this much and you are not a subscriber to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash beyondthescrum and join. It's a good site. You'll like it. I already joined. Good. (laughs) Hey, thanks everyone for listening. Have a good one.